Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 95 for the 2nd 3rd of December 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is one that I first addressed back in episode 23, the Planet X of the late Zechariah Sitchin. Back in episode 23, I talked about perhaps one of the most infamous or famous, depending on your point of view, stories about Planet X, the claims made by Zachariah Sitchin. I visited other versions of Planet X in six subsequent episodes, and I thought that I had exhausted most of the material. In each one, I addressed different reasons why we are pretty darn certain that the Planet X that these particular people claim is not actually real. Then a few weeks ago, I was sent an email that was BCC'd, or blind carbon copied, to Michael Heiser, whom you'll hear from in January. The email was sent by someone who claimed that he was, quote, on a quest to find logical reasons to not accept Zachariah Sitchin's theories, end quote. While he had no responses to the points that I raised for why Planet X, the one from Zachariah Sitchin, cannot exist as he claimed, he pointed to several articles on Sitchin's website that claimed that new astronomical discoveries confirmed his ideas. Since many of them were ones that I had not yet discussed on the podcast, and the general format was similar to a certain ufologist's claims of prophecy, I'm going to go through a few of them now. Perhaps one of the most unexpected results of the Cassini mission at Saturn, at least so far, is that the moon Enceladus, or depending on your pronunciation, Enceladus, has an active system of geysers shooting liquid material into space from the South Pole. This provided material for Sitchin, who, in March of 2006, wrote the following. The assertion that the Anunnaki came from a planet, Nibiru, whose orbit extends far out into our solar system, has repeatedly led to the question, how could life exist so far away from the sun, where it is extremely cold and everything freezes? My answer has been that we need not go that far out to freeze to death. Just rising above Earth's surface would do the trick. It is the planet's atmosphere that retains the warmth, be it warmth obtained from the sun or from an internal source of heat. The critical issue for the Anunnaki, I explained, was to prevent the loss of Nibiru's atmosphere. They sought to do that with a shield of gold particles, and they came here to obtain the gold. Now comes news that made headlines worldwide. Water geysers on Saturn moon hint life possibility. The exciting news came from a report in the journal Science, 10 March 2006, in which NASA revealed that the Cassini spacecraft discovered that Saturn's fourth moon, Enceladus, spouts water geysers, quote, which hints at pockets of liquid water under the surface, end quote. For that, the temperature below the surface must be above freezing. In fact, even the moon's above-surface temperature turned out to be 100 degrees warmer than what was expected. While planets generate internal heat from radioactive materials in their cores, the Saturn moon, it is now theorized, may be warmed by magnetic reactions as it orbits Saturn. One way or another, the astounding discovery corroborates scientifically the information that I have reported based on Sumerian writings. Yes, even that far away from the sun, it can be hot enough for water to flow and life to emerge. So Sitchin is arguing against something that many others, including myself, have brought up as to a problem with his ideas. You need a heat source for life. 
and he thought that the discovery of geysers on Enceladus is evidence that heat can exist beyond Earth. Anything that is active requires energy to power it, and geysers are no exception. That energy in this case is almost certainly heat energy generated by tidal forces from interacting with Saturn, not magnetic reactions. The reason that this is not evidence that Nibiru can still be warm is that Nibiru isn't tidally heated. Sitchin's model is that Nibiru is a singular planet on an elliptical orbit that takes it well beyond the orbit of Pluto into the inner solar system. It has no other body with which it could interact to give it tidally or even magnetically somehow driven heat. It is true that the object, if it existed, would probably have some radiogenic heat source, but an atmosphere is like a blanket. It's not some force field that's 100% effective. The basic rules of thermal physics still apply, and any planet that's so far from the sun, receiving much less than 1% of the heat energy from the sun that we get on Earth, would require an enormous atmosphere to keep it warm, just like piling more and more blankets on top of you during the winter months. This also is not something that would have been a recent event half a million years ago, which is when the Anunnaki allegedly came to Earth to mine gold under Sitchin's model. The Anunnaki would have had to have evolved on such a planet and then somehow also survive on Earth under an atmosphere that would be equivalent of us on Earth going to perhaps Mars, which has an atmospheric pressure of only 0.05% that of Earth's. In other words, there are some ways of special pleading arguments to solve the heat problem for Nibiru, but none of them have anything to do with geysers on Enceladus. Another story on Sitchin's website dates to May 2001, and it's entitled The Case of the Lurking Planet. Sitchin wrote about others who wrote about an analysis of Comet 2000-CR-105, which has an orbit that takes roughly 3,345.87 years to complete. Sitchin says that it comes as close to the Sun as Neptune, and goes as far from the Sun as 4.5 billion, with a B, kilometers. He happens to be wrong on that last point, since 4.5 billion kilometers actually is the orbit of Neptune, but the comet only comes as close as 6.6 billion kilometers, roughly the orbit of Pluto, but it goes as far as 60.3 billion kilometers from the Sun. Really, really far. Regardless, Sitchin latches on to speculation of what caused the comet to be on its current orbit. The journal Science headlined it, Comet's Course Hints at Mystery Planet. Sitchin quotes from Ron Cohen, who wrote in Science News, quote, Such an oblong orbit is usually a sign that an object has come under the gravitational influence of a massive body, end quote. And he quotes from planetary dynamicist Dr. Brent Gladman, or Brett Gladman, who said, quote, The comet's orbit could be the handiwork of a as-yet-unseen planet that would have to lie some 200 astronomical units from the Sun, end quote. He also quotes from Dr. Hal Levison, who I'm still working on getting an interview about, who said, quote, Undoubtedly, something massive has knocked the hell out of the Kuiper Belt, end quote. This is something that I have talked about before. It is entirely possible that there exists a planet beyond Neptune, embedded within the Kuiper Belt, with a semi-major axis several times farther away from the Sun than Pluto. However, that object cannot be Sitchin's Nibiru. 
That's because Nibiru has to come into the inner solar system during its orbit. It must be on a highly elliptical orbit, and yet the hypothetical planet that would cause the various orbits that we see out in the Kuiper Belt would need to stay in the outer solar system. It, it can't come into the inner solar system. If it were as elliptical as needed by Sitchin, then these various objects on these weird orbits that we're using as evidence for this unseen planet shouldn't even be on these weird orbits. They should have been cleared out of the solar system, ejected by now, due to the very large Nibiru passing through the area so much over the solar system's history and perturbing these orbits and giving them energy to get out of the system. It's very much like I've talked about in the past about the dynamical stability of the asteroid belt, that the asteroid belt appears to be stable, Therefore, it couldn't have experienced a giant planet passing through it every roughly 36,000 years, you know, millions of times over the course of the solar system's history. The asteroid belt would have been cleared out, just like these objects wouldn't be on these weird orbits, they would also have been cleared out. A third article that I was sent is what Sitchin entitled, back in 2000, The Case of the Layered Asteroid. He opens it with, quote, it is not every day that I get an overseas call with someone shouting, Congratulations! End quote. The occasion was that Sitchin thought that findings of the NEAR, that's Near-Earth Asteroid Rendezvous spacecraft, and announced by NASA on February 17, 2000, quote, corroborated an ancient cosmogony pieced together in my 1976 book, The Twelfth Planet, end quote, because the asteroid that NEAR was investigating... Eros, or Eros, had hints of a layered structure. That strongly suggested, if it had a layered structure, it strongly suggested that it had been melted at some point, which isn't possible for an asteroid of its size. It's about 33 by 13 by 13 kilometers across. So, it would have had to have been part of a much larger object that could have melted and differentiated to give it a layered structure. For example, the second largest asteroid in the solar system, Vesta, is differentiated. It has a core, a mantle, and crust. But with Eros, Sitchin then said, quote, Now little Eros tells us robotic visitor from Earth. Yes, indeed. I was once part of a beautiful planet that broke up. Yes, I originated as a result of a fiery collision, as the Sumerians described thousands of years ago. And that is why I am layered. And this, my friends, is only the latest modern discovery that corroborates the amazing ancient knowledge. End quote. Only, there's a bit of a problem. The scientist was wrong in that NASA news conference. The exact quote was, There are also tantalizing hints that it has a layered structure, as if it were made up of layers, like in plywood. But that is likely not the case now that we have more data, and more people have looked at the data. In fact, so far as one can trust an encyclopedia, to quote from Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, A significant discovery was that Eros is an undifferentiated asteroid, i.e., it was never subjected to extensive melting and segregation into layers of distinctive composition, and so may be a pristine example of primordial solar system material, end quote. This is the problem that we see so often, not only in astronomy, but science and skepticism in general. Preliminary results, tantalizing hints, and other new discoveries that have yet to be vetted by the community. But they are pounced upon by pseudoscientists and others if it helps to bolster their case. 
you never hear about the follow-up when they say that they were incorrect, that new data changes the original interpretation. And you certainly never hear that from the pseudoscientists if the original wrong interpretation was what had helped their case. For example, years now after the Large Hadron Collider faster-than-light neutrinos were shown to be an instrumentation error, the initial results are still being used by claimed psychics and other New Agers to say that, quote, science proves that whatever can travel faster than light, therefore psychic stuff exists, or whatever. In addition to those three different types of information that I've now just discussed, there were a few other links that I was sent, and there are a few other stories on Sitchin's website related to then-current events that allegedly bolstered his claims. Unfortunately for Sitchin, just like these three examples, they do not do what he says, or at the very most, they are consistent with Nibiru that could harbor Anunnaki, but they are also consistent with what astronomers actually think is going on and that does not support a Nibiru planet that harbors Anunnaki. And despite all of that, one still cannot overcome the evidence against Sitchin's Nibiru, such as the stability of the asteroid belt, the lack of any culture writing about this giant planet that was in the inner solar system other than what Sitchin interprets from the Sumerians, and there's also the issue of the heat source. However, this kind of information typically fails to convince those who believe Sitchin's ideas. And despite the claims of open-mindedness, the man who emailed me would not accept that Sitchin was wrong, even after I went through his questions and material in addition to what I've just now explained to you. In this particular case, that's despite the second paragraph in his final email where he stated, quote, Your explanations have been both clear and convincing, for which I have no logical defense against them. Despite Freely admitting the persuasiveness of your information, I have to say, I still cannot let go of Sitchin's theories. I like to think of myself as a reasonable thinking person, so let me explain why I can't dismiss Sitchin's theories as just made-up junk. In short, Sitchin's theories plausibly explain so many things about humans and our ancient history, i.e., who we are, where do we come from, why did we come about. So many things just make sense with Sitchin's theories. End quote. To be fair, I did somewhat expect that this would be the case, as did Michael Heiser, with that particular emailer. As with any belief system, it's hard to let go even when confronted with inconsistencies and evidence against it. But as far as I was concerned, it was still a worthwhile exercise to look into more of the claims, and to his credit, the emailer was polite. With that in mind, starting in two episodes, as in starting with episode 97 for January 1st, 2014, you will hear from Michael Heiser, an ancient languages and texts scholar, and hear how even the textual evidence that was claimed to support Sitchin's original ideas is found to be, well, not found. This episode's question for Q&A comes via Facebook from Asima Alam, who asks, quote, You and some feedback have referenced first principles. What are first principles? End quote. This is a case where I unfortunately use a term that I use every day, and it's one that I forgot that it's not commonly used. So this is a really good question, especially a short question for this kind of episode. 
First principles means basic principles or basic ideas or basic concepts. For example, in a physics class, one might be asked to derive Kepler's third law from first principles, which means to start with Newton's basic law of gravity. It's often invoked as a way to step back from something complicated or step back from a built-up system to take a more basic look at something and try to figure out if it makes sense from, again to use the word basic, basic ideas or basic principles or basic knowledge. Sometimes in this podcast, it's to take a more objective approach to see if something is possible. At other times, it means, again, just to go to the most basic of physics principles to try to derive an answer. For example, the puzzler in episode 74 was, can you derive from first principles what the sky color of Mars should be? What this means is, can you go to basic physics, look at the composition of the atmosphere, how molecules scatter light, and how particles scatter light, and determine what the color of Mars' sky should be based on those fundamental ideas of optics and human vision, as opposed to just taking a picture and then trying to argue whether or not it was color calibrated correctly. I hope that that answers your question and better explains what's meant by first principles. That wraps up this Q&A segment, and if you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, though the easiest is probably just to send email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. There is one piece of feedback, and that's related to episode 92 on Young Earth Creationist Claims About Spiral Galaxies. Richie wrote in and left a comment on the show notes page. He wrote, quote, Interesting take. Not going to argue or debate the entire article, but I want to point out that your very last sentence should be a problem for you or believers of a 13.8 billion year old universe. Quote, would still easily allow for a universe at least several hundred million years old, if not over a billion. End quote. And that was a quote from what I had said. If a billionish is your maximum, That's a big problem to try to account for 13.8 billion, which is over 13 times greater. That's a huge margin of error. It is not a problem for young Earth creationists, as this allows for human error and assumptions to create inflated dates. 6,000 plus years is within the maximum range. End quote. The reason that I'm discussing this feedback is because it presents a very, very common creationist tactic but one that I haven't really talked about on the podcast before. I wrote back, I don't know if you're a creationist or not, but your comment displays an incredibly common tactic employed by young earth creationists. Quote, hundreds of millions is not equal to 13.7 billion, therefore 6,000. It's a form of false dichotomy where you have effectively said that because I gave a number of less than 13.7 billion, you quoted several hundred million years old, if not over a billion, then 6,000 years as a maximum is plausible. Not only that, but you have quote-mined, or at least misrepresented what I said. The quote that you pulled had the context where I spent an entire episode explaining that the Young Earth Creationist concept, that spiral galaxies are solid, static structures like string as opposed to density waves like water, is wrong. But that if the creationist model were right, which it's not, then it would still easily allow for an age of spiral galaxies on the order of about a billion years. That is not a, quote, margin of error, 1 billion versus 13.7 billion. That is an approximate allowable age given a wrong model that's propagated by creationists. 
As for human error and assumptions, unless everything that we measure today is wrong, that base level approximation cannot be incorrect. We can measure the speed of our solar system around the galaxy. It takes about a quarter of a billion years. Thus, my point that even if the spiral arms were static, it would still take a few orbits to wrap up, allowing for that billion-year figure, not 6,000 years. Since I wrote that, I have not heard back from Richie, and I don't honestly expect to, but if I do, I will update you in a later episode. As for the puzzler, well, given that I don't have a good puzzler for this episode, and that so far only one person has responded to the puzzler from last episode, I'm going to leave that question open until, I guess, episode 101, mid-February. The question, or the puzzler, is how many nautical miles is the circumference of the moon? That's also my way of saying that this is the last episode that I'm recording before I leave for Australia, unless I happen to be able to fit in Hal Levison for an interview. The next several episodes are going to be interviews, which will then culminate with the episode number 100 spectacular, due out on or about February 1st, 2014. That wraps up this topic for the 95th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Next time you hear from me, I will hopefully have a wonderful Australian accent. G'day, mate. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can definitely use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast or feedback at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can directly tweet me at pseudoastro. I do read every message and I appreciate the feedback, especially positive feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, if you're free, if you have time, you know, a minute or two, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, tell family, tell random people on various internet fora. 